Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So Dune Part 2 is coming out this week, and I have to tell you, it is rare to see a movie with this much consensus around it. It's pretty much unanimous that the movie is a triumph. Today on the podcast, how Dune Part 2 managed to win over all the critics. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. I mean, look, when Denis Villeneuve made the first Dune movie, he took a massive risk. He told half the story with no real guarantee that the second part would be greenlit. Well, not to spoil that part for you, but it was greenlit. Dune Part 2 opens in theaters this Friday. This world is beyond cruelty. You've been fighting the Harkonnens for decades. My family's been fighting them for centuries. They were massacred. Alongside my father. Your father didn't believe in revenge. Okay, so... The reviews are glowing, and it's, I think, a testament to Denis' lifelong obsession with the story. This is a sci-fi epic that is set on the planet Arrakis. And brilliant performances that we got here by an all-star cast that includes Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, Austin Butler, and Rebecca Ferguson. Rad Simon Pillay and Rachel Ho have both seen it. And look, we try, usually on the show, to find a range of viewpoints. But like almost everyone else who's seen it, they're both on the same page. They loved it. Rad, Rachel, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Hi. I am, first of all, I just got to say, Rad, I'm used to you being grumpy. I'm used to you not liking <laughs> stuff. I feel a little bit disoriented. The world is off its axis because you liked this movie. Tell me about uh, it. How much did you love it? I mean, look, like this might be my favorite Danny Villeneuve movie. Wow. And that's, I think, is saying a lot. Wow. Like, I mean, okay. And right. like, wow. and here's the thing, right? Because it's like with Danny Villeneuve. You've seen Arrival, movies, bro? Okay, continue. You're I've seen Arrival. Yeah, but, yeah. but that's the thing. Like, all of his movies, I've always been awestruck by his movies, but yeah. also there's always been something that nagged at me. Like, I always felt like never they never stuck the landing. But again, awestruck by his movies because this guy, he's a very operatic filmmaker. Like, yes. he'll point a, a camera at a tree and be like, it's a tree. Right? And like, <laughs> And I'm like, dude, it's a treat. Yes. <laughs> like that's, but so I feel like Dune, like now that it's it's all clicked into place, like I feel like it it feels like the perfect match for his very operatic sensibilities. Hmm. And I feel like you know a lot of the ideas he's been working through throughout his career in movies like Arrival, in movies like Sicario, in movies like even on Sandys, I yeah. feel like they've all kind of come together in this movie. And so when I say like I think he stuck the landing with Dune too, I, I don't just mean he stuck the landing for Dune. I feel like he stuck the landing for his whole career. Like he might as well just quit now while he's ahead oh okay wow i was like oh rad how much did you love it? and you're like he should never make another movie again <laughs> yeah. this is his best work <laughs> rachel what about you did you how much did you love this movie I loved it, but I would like to see Denis continue to work. That's just my <laughs> personal thing. I would love to How see him continue you? to work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's just the perfect blend of 
that operatic visual storytelling with the quieter stuff that he did in Canada before, like Polytechnique, Maelstrom. So I love that there's just this nice blend between the two. And it's such a difficult book to adapt. It's such a, and like people have tried many times in the past. I think he absolutely sticks to landing on this one. I agree with Rad. I would, to be clear though, I do want Denis to continue to making films. I, I think we deserve more Denis. Yeah. And I think he deserves to share his gift with the world even more. I want to get into that thing that you just mentioned, this idea that this has kind of been a difficult story to mm-hmm. make. Like, I mean, people have been trying to make a good Dune movie for yeah. forever. Um, I think for, for a period of time um, in the middle of the 70s, there was a movie that was going to star Salvador Dali and Mick Jagger, <laughs> which is just like a, a wild sentence to say out loud. Finally, you get, you know, the David Lynch movie, 1984-ish, 1985 maybe. Um, and that's a mess. Everyone sort of acknowledges it's a mess. Lynch is like, I don't even want to have my name out on this thing. And then you get into Denis, and Denis wants to adapt it. What kind of risks do you think he was taking when he was choosing to adapt this, Rachel? I mean, a massive risk because he has built – he's a director that doesn't really have a bad movie. You could say like you yes. could have minor quips with different films and different aspects of his film. But I wouldn't say any of his movies – like I would take anyone down that says that he has a bad movie. I don't think any of his films doesn't are exist. bad. doesn't exist, 100%. It doesn't. It doesn't. But this film, like you just said, there has been a, a track record that hasn't been overly successful. I would want to defend David Lynch though. He's given like a bit over two hours to make a movie that requires, you know, 10 plus hours. So I, I don't really. I, Rachel, you're waking up I in want, the morning and defending the David Lynch Dune. That's the choice we're making today. For David Lynch's Dune here. I don't think it's as trash. He also wants enough. 10 hours of Dune. By the way. Like, I feel like I didn't miss that part. <laughs> but I just it's it's a really difficult story to adapt just from all the different houses that are involved. Yeah. The different worlds that you have to depict. It's crazy. It's really, really difficult. And I think he absolutely did it to perfection. And I, you said it in your intro, this is something that's been a, an obsession of his. And I think that that yeah. care and that thought really does come through. One of the difficulties of adapting Dune is that, like, do you go, do you adapt the first three books, which are mostly set in the same mm-hmm. world? Or do you adapt, you know, a larger, wider view of the world, which I think by the end of the series, the time jump is like thousands of years into the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, this is just like a large, expansive universe um, based on the novels. Uh, but there's something to be said about choosing sort of a smaller moment and focusing on that. Rad, when you reviewed part one, you were one of the few critics who didn't like it. A bunch of people liked that movie. And then Rad was like, no, I don't know about this. And that is a Rad that I know and love. <laughs> but how, how do you think Dune part two succeeds where maybe part one failed? Well, I mean, like, if you go back to what I said back with Dune part one, I was like, I was really, really into it until like the last act where it really felt like it was kind of meandering and searching for mm. for a conclusion really right and it was like it was the thing is like there was so little story in that first part because they were setting everything up for all the conflict to happen in Doom part two so for me i was like this is hubris like how is danny Villeneuve with such a little story making me sit here for more than two and a half hours and by the way i then watched it three more times after that so like <laughs> you know where to shove sure. my opinion of course but with yeah in but it's in retrospect like two. it was all worth it. yeah part two like made it all worth it because like now that all the things were in place all of the now the story that the story clicks in the plot clicks in like everything comes together you you the whole story just basically comes into focus and i finally it's like i get it and i could finally see what the story was really about i could finally see that this is actually a story that is very influenced by lawrence of arabia as denny villeneuve has actually mentioned in the past i mean this is essentially you know like like paul atreides is lawrence of arabia in space and so the idea that this story was actually about a guy 
a white savior who is not actually the savior he thinks he is that you know that that like where he's he's actually just an agent of the oppressors like that mm-hmm. i loved i fell in love with that but it only came through in the second part so let's let's i guess like let's give people a little bit of the context of the story here polytrades is a duke in exile um and he finds himself living among the fremen and the fremen mm. look to him and they go oh maybe you might be the prophet that we've been waiting for and yeah. he sees how much power he has and he decides that he's going to to, you know, I don't know, lead them into battle against the oppressors that they have, but maybe also for his own ends. That's that's the rough mm-hmm. general plot line um, of 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 the the Dune that you know that uh, that that Denis decides to tell. Talk a little bit about the break in part one and part two because I do think you're right. Something about part one felt unsatisfying in the sense that mm-hmm. we were finally arriving at like, okay, now the conflict has begun at the end of part one. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I think, you know, if you, you could have watched part one and actually thought it was a white savior narrative. I right? see. Like, you're going to, it's like, he is, here's a character that embedded himself with this indigenous community, feels like he's going to help fight the oppressors alongside them when he comes from the family of oppressors who was in league with oppressors. You know, he's coming from a world where it's power plays between these colonialists and he's joining this indigenous community to fight back. Right. And again, so it's like, you know, like by the end of the movie, it's like, I, I am going to join forces with you. That's it. Like, that was the, that was a contained story. I think there was hints of where this was going. There was obviously hints of where the story was going to go. Yeah. But it's, only in part two where you just start dealing with the messiah complex you start dealing with with paul atreides own hubris you start seeing kind of his entitlement in all of this and you start seeing how he's still just a cog in a colonial machine okay i want to come back to that in just a moment because actually i think that is that in itself is very rich fertile ground but let's talk about a little bit about the, the the acting rachel because there's a lot to be made of the casting that they made you know in this movie timothy chalamet a rising star austin butler a rising star zendaya who's been around for a long time she is in the first movie you know what is essentially like a single frame right like we advertise zendaya is in dune and then you show up and it's like a perfume commercial like she's just standing <laughs> in the desert for 45 seconds and then the first part ends how is the acting in the second one what do you make of the performances here I, it's such an interesting thing to have a film like this where you have a collection of younger they're not younger but like they're not they're, young, they're the contemporary they're, sort of they're younger yeah, yeah they're yeah. the ones who I kind of look at them like they will inherit Hollywood as yes. long as none of them do anything kind of egregious in their careers <laughs> the in the future next is little theirs. while yes, yeah. Exactly. yeah it's theirs it's it's theirs for the taking and it's so cool to have a film that has them all in it and so you have Austin Butler playing this menacing a villain who he does it really, really well. And it's such a departure from the Elvis from, you know, masters of the air where he's this, you know, suave captain boy. Like he's, he's actually really, really fit for the role. And I think he's not doing the Elvis accent for once, which is kind of nice, you know? Yeah. It's not there. Masters of the air. It's still there. (laughs) People are like, it's not there. I'm like, it's there. He's not Elvis in this one though. And then, um, you know, Florence Pugh, who's not in it for very long, but her role is so important in the film or in the story, I should say, generally speaking, in the books. And she's not in the movie for very long, but the way she plays it, and I think that's a testament to her talent as well, is you can feel the importance of her character. You can feel where it could go um, with her, unlike Zendaya in the first one, which, yeah, she's just in there for a few seconds. But she did the press tour, which was... Yes, she did. That, that's what a was trooper. important um, yeah. for that mm-hmm. one, yeah. So it's it's amazing to see this kind of collection of actors coming together and being... All of them are like they're across the board. They're all they're all performing at a really high and you can understand why these are going to be the ones who will eventually be 
you know, the generations, the Tom Hanks, the Tom Cruises, mm-hmm. the Meryl Streep's of, of the next 20 some odd years. I add quickly to you. What do you what do you make of the performances in this movie? I mean, look, like I think, you know, when you're an actor in a Danny Villeneuve movie, you have to be great to compete with the sound and fury of it all, right? I mean, like, like my yes. theater was trembling with this movie. <laughs> and, it's like, and meanwhile, I'm weak in the knees because of Rebecca Ferguson. Of course, yes. this cast is stacked. Like, they have so many greats. Rebecca Ferguson, Josh Brolin, even in, like, the itty-bitty roles, right? Where you got, like, Palm Door winner Leia Sadu shows up for a scene to seduce someone <laughs> and then gone. And, and, like, Florence Pugh's in the margins of the story be like, hey, Timothy, remember Remember when we were in Little Women together? Yes. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like, that's how stacked this cast is. Yes. Um, there is something that's really compelling to me about the way that they've organized this movie to be the sort of powerhouse of, you know, all this sort of relevant talent at the moment and then sort of be quiet about it. You know, like the only – I think, like, there's something to be said about the fact that there isn't a – current, if you will, you know, um, Tom Cruise-level star in this movie. It is just all these younger generations. Rachel, do you see this movie as a kind of like a passing of the torch moment? That's an interesting way to look at it. I think so. It's almost like Denis welcoming them in, Denis pulling them together and yeah. saying, you know, because I, I, it's saying welcome. And, and he, <laughs> but I, you know, I mean, they've all done really, really well before this. Yeah. But um, from it sticks really with me that they're all just in the same movie at the same time. Denis is always able to get the most tremendous performances out of everybody. It's in the same kind of vein as, in my opinion, a Chris Nolan, where even the yeah. smallest role is played by big stars, but they all make an impact. And they you understand why the highest talents are playing a sideline role in yeah. it. Um, and because it makes the film better collectively, when you put them all together, it just makes for a really interesting tapestry of different voices that mm-hmm. are coming in. And I, yeah, I can't say enough things about that. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you're just joining us, this is Commotion, and my name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud, Ride Simon Palais here, and Rachel Ho is here. We're talking about Dune Part 2 because it has its big Montreal premiere tomorrow night, and then it opens in theaters everywhere on Friday. Right, I want to go back. I want to go back to the thing that you mentioned about white saviors. And the, 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 maybe let's talk about a little bit of the context, the larger sociopolitical context that this movie is landing in. How overt do you think are the parallels between the situation in the Middle East right now, and then the sci-fi world that is happening in Dune that has been created, of course, long before this current conflict. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I think anytime we're watching a story about colonizers and their power plays oppressing this indigenous community in the desert that is then trying to rebel and fight back for their freedom. Hmm. I mean, you have to, you, 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 you couldn't, you shouldn't be ignoring the parallels that has to the current conflict in the Middle East. But I think like, you know, it's interesting because you said like the, the, this current conflict, you know, like the Dune was written way before this current conflict, but the current conflict has this history going back at least a century, hmm. which is part of Dune's DNA. 
Because right. as I said, Dune is essentially a remake of Lawrence of Arabia, right? right. And Laura, you know, like that, that is like that, that is the influence here. That's where, uh, the, uh, the Hugh Herbert, uh, you know, took the Paul Atreides character from. If you look at Lawrence of Arabia, that is about this British soldier's role in the Arab revolt. It's about how the British kind of worked their way in and aligned themselves with the Arab revolt in, in Palestine and Sinai. Mm-hmm. And that's how they ended up taking control of that territory. So that history is very much part of what's the stage for the current conflict today. And so that history is in Dune's DNA. So whether the filmmakers are ready to address it or not, their movie is very, very relevant to what is going on right now. I'm glad you brought up Lawrence of Arabia because, first of all, two significant things. One, Lawrence of Arabia is, of course, a significant movie in and of itself. But one then, of the greatest ever. One of the greatest like, movies of ever. all time. Yes. But then, of course, it's also based on the real-life story of T.E. Lawrence because um, he wrote this memoir of his time um, at, as a British soldier who led um, – not led, but he convinced the Arabs to rise up against the Turks. And then he ended up kind of writing this memoir of saying, I feel like I may be Exploited these people and feeling mm. like he's not quite British, but he's not quite Arab. Um, and this is like a trope that we see over and over again. Like the idea of the the maybe a, a person with a lot of power or could have a lot of power sort of embedding themselves with a, with a bunch of people who don't have that much power and then leading them in a way. You see this in The Last of the Mohicans. You see this in The Last Samurai. You see this in Avatar. Like this is sort of a recurring trope. But the thing about Dune that is kind of interesting and different, um, and I'm talking here about the novel, is that it is supposed to be a subversion of this. It's supposed to be a subversion of whether you're able to pull this off at all. Do you think Denis' version or do you think Denis' landing point in part two actually gives you that, oh, we should actually question these this white savior narratives? Maybe I'll go to Rachel on this one and then Rad. I think it does um, it's very overt in terms of you know Zendaya char- Zendaya's character Chani? She's the one that's really vocalizing, um, you know, why do we need him? Like you know, mm. the, as a generate, his people were the ones who wrote the Messiah um, prophecy. So why should we believe him when they say this? You know, it happens to be our person, happens to be the Messiah. You know, and I think when he puts those 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 arguments forward i do think it because it, it is in a very obvious way as well okay. it's, it's not subtle the it's way explicit. that it's yeah it's very very explicit but i think that in a sense audiences kind of need that sometimes where it's just really put out there one side is put out there the other side is there then you have paul in the middle who's kind of weighing his options he understands uh you know where tani's coming from sure. um, but he also obviously knows his history and he knows um his his bloodlines traditions and what they're going for uh, but I do think that it is, and it's a bit adapted as well, I would say, to um, from what the novel was. I think the novel hmm. looks almost more at class warfare a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but this, the casting is very purposeful. Like, you know, hmm. Timothy is, is a very pale, pale <laughs> young man, you know, very, literal, very white yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, and compared to, you know, a lots of black and brown faces that you have amongst the Fremen. So there is a stark contrast there hmm. visually and then also through the dialogue as well. Mm-hmm. Rad, what about you? What's your take on this? Yeah, no. First of all, like I want to address that. Like, I think that subversion was there in Lawrence of Arabia. Like, yes. like I don't think Denny yeah. is doing anything like any. I don't think he's succeeding Lawrence of Arabia in any way when he lands on this final note that feels like triumphalism trip wired with 
kind of a cynical sense of deflating sense of like defeat here like yes. like we will our our moral compass is broken is basically where that where the movie lands so i think absolutely he nails it i think he nails it because he was so true to his big inspo which is lawrence of arabia and by the way i don't think i i guess like i mentioned that lawrence of arabia i think is the big like kind of sh- thing that shaped a lot of denny villano's career because you could see shades yeah. of that story also in Ansandis and Sicario and yes. stuff, right? So, like, that's that's why I say when he nailed that final note, when he when this becomes his masterpiece, it's because he has some he he has come as close as he could to the greatness that Lawrence of Arabia is. Okay, so with that with all that in mind, I actually want to play you guys a, a clip of, of of a show that just came out. Do not be fooled by our politeness, our bows, our maze of rituals. Death is in our air. And sea and earth. Just remember. We live and we die. We control nothing beyond that. Okay, so that is from Shogun. Right, I want to talk about this because that's a new series that drops Today on Disney Plus, it's based on James Clavell's novel of the same name. It's set in feudal Japan in the 1600s. I, I want us to have actually a more fulsome conversation about Shogun at some point on the show, but it just felt like too perfect a parallel to sort of talk about Dune and Shogun in conversation with each other. Rad, do you want to talk about how they might be in conversation with each other? Yeah, I mean, because look, like I was watching Shogun in the last week just as do I was watching Dune, and it yeah. was there was this overlap of oh, these are both narratives about colonialism. Yes, these are both narratives with a white savior trope built into them. But both of these versions, both the Dune, uh, Denny's Dune movie, and this version of Shogun is very resistant to that white savior trope, right? Because when mm-hmm. now when you watch Shogun, like remember Shogun was adapted into a miniseries back in the '80s, starring your mom's favorite crush, Richard Chamberlain. Um, and it was, <laughs> but it was very much stuck around in his orbit whereas this one shifts the focus more to the japanese characters and he this character that he plays is based on the first british sailor that lands in japan uh hoping to disrupt the kind of the portuguese stranglehold on trade in that region Mm. um and so it's about this british sailor being once again an agent of the colonialists and their power plays but the mood the show's perspective is very much with the japanese people and how they're using this colonizer would be colonizer as a pawn in their own power place hmm. right so so i was really taken by the series a for kind of once again resisting certain tropes that we that that was kind of built into the narrative but also for you know being this really rich interrogation of japanese culture and history of that time rachel you and i are not as fancy as rats we haven't had as much time to see the rest of the rest of shogun um but <laughs> but, look, but i think we should talk about this idea of these subversions of white savior narratives arriving now i mean like we're only like a year and a half out from avatar 2 man and like that was <laughs> totally a lawrence of arabia movie you know like that was just um that james sully's character going around unifying the tribes like that's that was what avatar 2 was but now we seem to be sort of engaging in some of the subversions of these tropes what do you make of these two in conversation with each other it's a really interesting comparison when when it was like, oh, go go watch uh, Shogun before this. I was like, why are we watching Shogun before this? Then I watched <laughs> and I went, oh, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense because it is I, – I have to admit I had a bit of a bias against Shogun. I didn't know much about the, the, the novel or the miniseries before. I really did think it was just white guy lands in Japan and – 
becomes fascinated with what with Japanese culture. I'm like, okay, that's like we've seen this before. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I see it with like people I went to university with. Like, this is just (laughs) what they do. And I was like, okay, whatever. But then you watch it, and it's a lot more nuanced than that. It's a lot more interesting. Um, One of my favorite things in those types of is when they just speak English or when they just go like, why are you being so mean to me? It's like, what if the Japanese just landed in in England? Like, I don't think you guys would be all that happy about it. So I like that there was this kind of um this, that it shows the divine it shows the japanese perspective which mm-hmm. which rad said like i think that that's what is often missing even in white savior ones because sometimes like in dune we're looking at it from paul's perspective we're yes. looking at his his conflict his internal conflict about it but in shogun they actually just flip it around and say well what are the japanese thinking about this and what, mm-hmm. what are they saying about this which i think is very refreshing yeah, right. When you think about these two um, in conversation with each other, first of all, there's there's a there's a grandness of scale, right? There's sort of an epic sort of feel mm-hmm. to both of these stories that you're watching, and I think we're used to we're kind of familiar with the epic as like something that we watch from like a white savior perspective, and so the idea of like employing these methods, I mean, like Shogun is being compared to Game of Thrones here, you know, um, mm-hmm. employing these like sort of visual cues to tell these stories. Uh, how are you thinking about the the, the grand epic, you know? scale of these stories well i mean like first of all the game of thrones comparisons are obvious i made the comparison myself because like this is addictive appointment viewing television where you know it's got this propulsive kind of energy between like you know the sex and and the carnage and 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 the betrayals and all the backroom dealings yeah uh but in terms of like the lusciousness of this i i but my thing is like i do feel like shogun is just in my opinion is aspiring for something more i think it's aspiring to do right by this history Hmm. and uh, the authenticity of this culture like and so in my review i I compare like what they're going for to being like a kurosawa samurai epic with the with shades of like Scorsese's silence because there's in silence there's this negotiation of the brutality of this culture and what I feel when I watch Shogun I could feel the writer's room which is made up of a lot of Japanese Americans trying to like kind of grapple with their culture and and grapple with the frustrating brutal brutal things in their culture and that frustration really comes through and that's what made it more fascinating for me. I'm going to leave it there I'm going to go watch Dune Part 2 because only you two have seen it (laughs) I have not seen it yet Uh, Rad and Rachel thank you so much for your time you guys are the best thank you Thanks for having Thank me. You. Of course. Rad Simon Pillay is a regular on Commotion and a film critic on for CTV's Your Morning. Rachel Ho is a freelance writer and film critic. You can find her Dude Review and exclaim right now. Dude 2 opens in theaters on Friday. Shogun is streaming right now on Disney+. And that is it for the podcast today. Remember, you can listen to the show anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Elamine. See you tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.